I'm a second son. Um, I have an older brother and two little sisters. None of us are that little anymore, but, um, but that's how my family works. It made me think about my relationship with my brother. Um, with my brother and me, there's always a competition uh, about uh, when we were younger, it was who was taller and who was stronger. And um, now that we're older, it's, it's kind of who's fitter and who's better looking and who's got less gray hair and um, who's more successful. And uh, I, I think I'm losing the competition for being the toughest brother right now. Um, my brother decided um, just before he turned 40, um, he's about to turn 50 now, but he, um, he decided he would compete in Ironman triathlons. And um, so, you know, this is a, a, a triathlon. You, you swim, then you ride your bicycle, then you run. And the Ironman, you, uh, you swim two miles, you ride your bicycle 112 miles, and then you finish that with a marathon. 26.2 mile run. Um, so the best people in the world can do this in just sub eight hours. Seven hours, 50, I think, is the record right now. Um, most people um, sort of finish much slower than that. Um, I think they normally cut you off at 16 hours. Um, there are some races where they'll let you go for, you know, as long as you can, uh, but most people give up after that amount of time. Um, my brother didn't race in sunny Kona. You know, there's a big triathlon in Kona. Uh, he did his first one in Wales, in England. On this dismal, drizzling, raining, wet, windy, cold day. Um, I think there was actually a landslide across the road just after he rode his bicycle through. So um, how do you come back from a challenge like that as the toughest brother? It's not going to happen, I don't think. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Um, there is a funny dynamic between brothers, and um, ladies, I don't know if it's like that with you and your sisters, um, but with brothers, there's always this sense of establishing the pecking order and, and jostling for position. Um, and in our Bible passage today, um, Jesus tells this parable of two brothers. Um, there's an older brother and a younger brother. As I said, we'll read about the older brother in a little bit. And part of the story is they're jostling for position as the good son, I think. And the other part is about each brother's jealousy for what the other one has. And uh, like we often get in the Bible, the end of this story may not be what you expected. Um, so let's pray that God will teach us today about being good sons, good daughters. But even more than that, he'll teach us about him being the good father. So let's pray. Um, dear God, as we open your word today, will you show us your character as the good father who loves your children in spite of our foolish behavior? Teach us to come home to you when we run from you. And thank you that you celebrate when your lost children come home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think today we, we possibly have the most, um, one of the best short stories ever written. Um, a little parable of Jesus. A story that has a deeper meaning when you dig beneath the surface. Um, and to give you some context, Jesus was talking to this crowd of people. Um, but at the beginning of the chapter that we read, particularly there are tax collectors listening um, tax collectors in that time, they were kind of pretty despised in society. I hope there's no tax collectors here. It might be the same sentiment now. And there were sinners and people who are known for doing bad things. Tax collectors and sinners, and they gathered around Jesus leaning in to hear him. Uh, but there's also religious people to do, you know, kind of really straight-laced religious people. Um, Pharisees, teachers of the law, um, rabbis. And they didn't approve of Jesus talking with sinners. So that's some context. But here they are, this big crowd of people all listening to Jesus. And Jesus tells this parable, it's kind of like a hypothetical story, um, of a man with two sons. Verse 11, you can follow along. And the man had two sons. The younger one says to his father, 
Father, give me my share of the estate. Um, give me my share of the estate. Divide the inheritance. I want my money, and I want it now. I want my money, I want it now. Can you imagine what that must have been like for the father, for the son? I'd, I don't know what would happen if I said that to my father. Divide the inheritance right now. <laughs> um, and it's not like the son asked politely. You know, Dad, do you think you could give me an advance on what you might be leaving behind when, you know, if and when you finally... That's not what he says. This son is cold. There's no please, there's no thank you. He says, I want my money, and I want it now, and I'm taking my cash, and I'm going to leave. I'm out of here. Um, I think if you ask your, for your inheritance before your parents are dead, what are you saying to them? I think you're saying to them, you're dead to me. I don't want anything more to do with you. You might as well be dead to me, and, and I want nothing more to do with you. It's over between us. We're breaking up, and you owe me. So, give me the money. Well, this father divides the property. He divides the property up between the two sons. We read on in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son set off together. Uh, he got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in, uh, in wild living. It doesn't tell us what kind of wild living, but you can guess. And this part is easy to imagine. The, the younger son is finally free of the old man. He's, he's you know... He's uh, off the farm. He's living it up. Uh, he's off to Vegas, baby. <laughs> his youngest son, he lives the high life. He, you know, if, you, if you've ever wondered what it'd be like to win just an, an, ex, an obscene amount of money in the lottery, you know, not money you earn, but just, just came to you all of a sudden. Um, you know, maybe me, I'd be like, well, I'd give a certain percentage to the church. <laughs> and there's this whole list of things I'd love to do. There's toys I'd like to buy and, and houses and properties and Probably some Napa Valley property, I'd say, would be pretty nice. Man, if I won the, the lottery, you know, we'd, we would want to live it up. And, and this kid, he lives it up. But pretty soon, there was nothing left to show. And uh, he'd squandered a lot. He wasted every cent. And uh, the cash dried up, and the high life dried up. And because this is a story that Jesus was telling, the land dries up as well. And there's a severe famine. Have a look at verse 14. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country. And so he takes the only, uh, sorry, and he began to be in need. And this younger son, he gets himself into trouble and he has nothing left in his pockets. And so he takes the only job that he can get. He hires himself out to a farmer who sends him to feed pigs, verse 15. And uh, remember Jesus is telling this story um, to people when they heard that detail. Um, Jewish people, particularly, would have turned their noses up because uh, Jewish people didn't even touch pigs, uh, let alone feed them. If, if you touched a pig, um, then you weren't fit to come before God. You had to wash your clothes, you had to wait till evening and say a special prayer, and only then you could. Um, uh, in the scriptures, it, it equates touching a pig, it's like eating a rat. It, it literally says that. It's, it makes you unclean before God. And um, so here's this younger son, though. He's, he's literally working in the pig pen. He's getting covered in their muck. And uh, he's so hungry, we read in verse 16, that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But nobody gave him anything. Imagine being desperate to eat the pig food. Um, our son Jamie is working down at um, Jamison Ranch down there in, in Napa. It's an animal rescue. He gets to feed the pigs. And, you know, they sort of slop whatever is left over anything. Pigs will eat anything. Imagine this kid saying, I wish I could eat that mush. 
Well, this younger son, he'd gone from having everything to having nothing. And the high life to the lowest of lows. Um, he had nothing and he had nobody. And he began to think about home. He began to think about the farm and the old man. Maybe it hadn't been as bad as he remembered. And actually, he'd had it pretty good back at home. Um, um, and so did even the workers on his farm. Uh, even the hired men, the guys who were just hired day by day. So this is not even the, the permanent staff, just the, the day laborers. They even had food to spare. And here he is hungry. And so the son writes this speech, the kind of speech that goes something like this, Dad, I've been an idiot. And uh, I know I can never be your son again, but at least hire me as one of your day laborers. Um, hire me like that. Verse 18, he says, this is, this is the speech he worked out in his head. Verse 18, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I mean, it's honest and simple and humble. And the son is truly contrite. And so with this speech written, he gets up and he, and he heads home. And here's where the story takes a bit of a turn. We, we expect the dad to be indignant. You know, we expect him to be angry. We expect him to be furious at this son who squandered his hard-earned. Imagine that. Build up all that wealth. Squandered in a matter of months, perhaps. And then he comes back crawling home when the wealth runs out. Can you imagine? You know, you expect the dad to be rightly angry at his son. And everybody listening to the parable, I think, expects the same thing. But that's not what happens. What happens instead is something completely unexpected and um, completely inappropriate, actually. Something tender and something wonderful. Look at verse 20. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the dad does everything we wouldn't expect a Middle Eastern father to do. Middle Eastern fathers were very put together. They didn't run, they walked. They didn't go to people, people came to them. But this father, he doesn't sort of see his son in the distance and cross his arms on the porch and wait for him to come. That's not what he does. He, he doesn't wait to chide him, well, I see you're back. What have you got to say for yourself? He doesn't do that. From a distance, he sees his son and he's filled with compassion and his father's compassion moves him to action. He runs, which is this culturally inappropriate thing to do. He throws his arms around his son and, and he kisses him. Um, in the original language, it says he fell upon his neck. It's like just, just kissing and kissing. Um, I don't know if you kiss your father anymore or if you've got sons, adult sons. Do you still kiss them? And there's this beautiful tenderness as his father kisses his son, just like we kiss our baby boys. Somehow we let that go, don't we? There's this reconciliation and this moment where the relationship is taken back to before the damage was done. Back before the son said, give me my money, you're dead to me. But the son, he still doesn't feel worthy. Um, he gives the speech that he's prepared. Um, he says to his father, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But the father ignores the speech completely. Um, in fact, he cuts the son off midway through. Um, how can a son ever be worthy to be called a son? Um, we don't earn the right to be sons or daughters, do we? We don't earn it before birth. We, we become sons and daughters because of the miracle of childbirth. Or if it's by adoption, it's because... Two grown-ups or one grown-up decides they want to bring you into their family. It has nothing to do with the, the, the little person being worthy. People choose to share all they have with a child. 
Um, to choose parenthood is to choose to give yourself completely to the other person, to give everything you have to them. In our world, we sometimes hear parents say, you're not worthy anymore to be my son or daughter. It's sad. Um, this Bible passage, the way that God acts, that's not what he does. See, look again at what the father in this story does. He, he completely ignores his son's speech about worthiness because worthiness has nothing to do with being a child. His father's son was home, and that was all there was to it. His son was home. His son was back. His father wanted to show his son just how happy he was to see him and how happy he was that his lost son had come home. And so for the father gives from the abundance of love that he has for his son. He gives extravagantly and over the top. And the father says in verse 22 to the servants, he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe would have been the father's robe. It's a a big symbol, isn't it? I want you to be like me. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Um, Servants were never dressed by the master. Um, To give sandals is to to bring somebody into your family. Uh, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Um, You probably know that this story is often called the story or the parable of the prodigal son. Um, The definition of prodigal um, is extravagant, lavish, unrestrained, excessive, carelessly wasteful. That's That's the dictionary definition of prodigal. And the younger son, well, he lived a prodigal lifestyle after he took his inheritance. Um, he was unrestrained and excessive. And uh, he carelessly wasted the lot in an, in an orgy of prostitutes and wild living. But you have to ask yourself, is the son the true prodigal? Is the son the true prodigal? Because look at the father. Um, in a time when fathers were restrained and dignified. Here we have this father who runs and drapes himself on his son and who showers tokens of love and acceptance on his son far in excess of what was needed. It's extravagant and lavish and unrestrained. And and killing the fattened calf, it was just carelessly wasteful, to use that dictionary definition. You know, or was it wasteful? Because, of course, as Jesus told this story, he wasn't just telling the story about a dysfunctional family. He was telling the story about our dysfunctional relationship with God, the relationship between people and and our Heavenly Father. Jesus was telling them how much the Father in heaven longs to lavish blessing upon blessing on his children. How the Father in heaven longs to see his children come home to him and be restored to him. Even those who've squandered and wasted the blessings that he's given. Those who've previously said to God, you're dead to me. For the heavenly Father, there is nobody who's too far away to return to him. Nobody at all. There's nothing you could ever do that means God would reject you. If only you come back to him. If only you return home. And when you return to home to, to God, you won't meet a stern parent on the porch with crossed arms saying, well, what have you got to say for yourself? Instead, we, we, we get a, a father who sent his own son into the world to rescue us, uh, who runs to us with arms open wide, who, who showers kisses upon us and dresses us in the finest robe, um, the robe of righteousness. And he seats us in a place of honor. In the Bible, it tells us we're seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ now, if you're one of his friends. God makes us his children and he shares the inheritance with us. Uses that language of inheritance. I mean, Galatians 3.26, it says, Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You can become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And this is the constant message of the Bible. In Jesus, God has shown that he will stop at nothing to come and find us. And when he finds us, when we return home, what rejoicing there will be in heaven over a sinner who repents. Um, can you imagine this audience full of tax collectors and sinners listening, leaning in close? Can you imagine what it must have been like for them to imagine that they could be forgiven, to hear Jesus talking like that about family and forgiveness and restoration and, and being restored to a position of honor. And maybe you're sitting there in the pew this morning and you think, this is amazing. Jesus can make me part of his family. You might know what you've done this week. You might know what you've done your whole life. You might have been running from God forever. You might have said, I'm not interested. You might have said, I don't want your good gifts. I don't want you. And then you hear this story today. Maybe you've even made that speech to God, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. What does God have to say to you? Well, if you return to him, I think he'll say what the father said to the prodigal son. He'll say, quick, bring the fattened calf because his son or daughter of mine was dead and is now alive. They've been lost and now they've been found. Well, our story doesn't finish there. There's another brother, and I'm going to tell you quickly about him. This is a, a tale of two sons. What does the older brother think about the younger brother? I'm this good-for-nothing, ungrateful, spoiled, selfish younger brother. <laughs> Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son, he was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked him, what's going on? And the servant says, verse 27, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother is incredulous. He, he, he came home. He came home, and now father has killed the fattened calf for him, and people are dancing. What for? Verse 28, the older brother, he became angry, and he refused to go in. He refuses to go in. He says, I'm not going in with him. He is not my brother. I'm guessing at this point that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are listening to Jesus, the, um, the religious ones, I think they're probably nodding their heads at this, this point. You know, How dare that younger brother turn up after what he did? What, what right does somebody have to come to God and expect to be forgiven? What right do you have to expect forgiveness? Um, and these sinners and tax collectors, what right do they have to turn up to God and expect forgiveness? Because they haven't earned it. They haven't worked for it. And so I think Jesus tells the next story, um, the next part of the story for them, but I think he tells it for us too. Because his older brother, he's standing outside and he's refusing to go in verse 28. Look what the father does. His father went out and pleaded with the older brother. And this pleading, I think it's a little bit like the kisses. You know, the father pleads and he pleads with the older brother to the point where I think the father has probably given up his dignity. The father should just be able to order his son to come in. Stop being so ridiculous. Get inside now. But instead, the father is begging the son. And the older brother speaks, verse 29, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never even gave me a goat, a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? seems like the older son has a point. You know, it hardly seems fair, does it? If one son was worthy of the father's love, it was the older son. If it was anybody was going to be worthy, it was the older one. You know, look at the way he, he describes his relationship. Verse 29, for years and years, I've been your slave. I've never disobeyed you. 
and yet you never, never even gave me like a scrawny little goat to celebrate with my friends, and here the brother gets the fattened. Well, the older son feels like he should be worthy of the father's lavish displays of affection, not the other son. And we hear it in the, in the way the older brother distances himself from the younger brother. You know, he says, this son of yours. It's not my brother. He's this son of yours. He squandered your property, and now you kill the fatted calf for him? This is an angry man. But he's an angry man who's misunderstood his relationship with his father the whole time. Um, and his relationship with his brother too, I think. See, the older brother feels like he has to slave away for his father to earn his inheritance. Feels like he has to work for his inheritance. Um, like his hard work makes him worthy to be called a son. And this was the attitude of people who are religious legalists. They believe you have to slave away for God. You have to do things. You have to obey every command. And that way you can be worthy to be called a son of God. But family's not like that, is it? Um, at least not when your father is God. Listen again to how the father speaks tenderly to his older son. Look at verse 31. My son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, the older son, he thought he had... He thought he had nothing, but in fact, he already had everything. His father had already divided the inheritance. Everything he was standing on belonged to him, didn't it? The animals, they belonged to the older son. The farm, it belonged to the older son. And well, actually, the younger son, he kind of belongs to his older brother in a way too. Not like cattle, but like family. This brother of yours. That's what the father says. This brother of yours. I think of the point of the story about the older brother is to remind us that we don't have to earn... We don't have to earn the right to be children of God. It's not something we earn by doing religious things. It's not something we earn by, 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 by working. Um, we're children of God because God is our Father. He's our Creator. And, and He wants to be our family. He is our family if, if you'll choose Him, if you'll have Him. God wants us to treat Him like family. He wants us to spend time with Him and to enjoy His good gifts and, and know that they all come from Him. He lavishes them upon us, all of His good gifts. We don't need to feel like servants or slaves or employees. We need to remember that he simply loves us because he made us his children. Um, I picked this passage today for Father's Day because it reminds us of the incredible love that the Heavenly Father has for us. Um, prodigal love, extravagant, excessive, extreme, wonderful, generous, over-the-top outpouring of love that he has for us. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for us. The younger brother, he felt unworthy of his father's love because of what he'd done. But the father loved him anyway because he was his son. And the older brother, he felt like he had to earn his father's love through hard work. But the father loved him anyway, not because of what he did, but because he was his son. And God loves us. God loves each one of us just like the father in the story loved the sons. It doesn't matter what we've done, whether good or bad. God loves us because he's chosen us to be his sons and daughters. Dearly beloved by Him. And when we come back to Him, when we come back to the Father, what joy it causes in heaven. We come back to the Father today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this story that reminds us of Your love for us. Um, help us to trust in Jesus in all things. Uh, help us, uh, if we feel like we've run too far, help us to know that we can come home to You. And if we've been working hard for your approval, Father, help us to know that you love us anyway. 
We thank you for your blessing of forgiveness. And we ask that you'd help us to feel part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.